0: Luke 16 verses 1 through 9 is what we're going to be looking at this morning. Luke 16, 1 through 9. You'll find the words behind me. Uh, you'll find them on the screen in front of you. Uh, or if you've got it with you, uh, go ahead and follow along however it is that you want to do that before we read it and before we pray. No, let's pray first and then I'll give you a little something something and then we'll read it. How does that sound? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank um, oh my goodness, thank you for your grace. Uh, and how that's illustrated for us in, in big and little tiny ways, uh, day after day after day. We just want eyes to see it and ears to hear it because so often so often we miss it, these, these little moments that go by us. And then we're reminded when we have a moment like we just had that your grace is abound. It just abounds. It's everywhere. Uh, and it's so beautiful and we accept it. And so now again, God, we ask for you to speak and that we would hear and that we would be changed and that we would be transformed, that we would connect to that flow of grace that undergirds all of creation so that we can live lives of grace and generosity in this world. Amen. So before we read it, I want to say a little something about this story. This is one of those stories. I've preached on a number of them uh, before. Um, this is one of those stories in the, the gospel of Luke that is unique to Luke. Uh, Jesus tells uh, a series of 10 different little stories, call them parables, uh, in, in the gospel of Luke that are unique to Luke. Uh, and it's at this part in, in Luke's gospel that uh, Jesus is w- his making His way from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south, right? There comes a point in chapter 9 where Luke says He sets His face towards Jerusalem, which means He's going to Jerusalem and there's resolve in Him. He knows what's going to happen when He gets there. We all know what happens at the end of Luke when He gets there, right? Trouble. So the cross is waiting. So He's, he's taking His disciples on a trip from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. Now, most good Jews would take a trip, would take the long way around in order to get there. Uh, Because in between Galilee in the north and Jerusalem in the south is a place called Samaria. Have you heard of Samaria? Samaria is enemy territory. Samaria is full of people who don't think like Jews, who don't think like Jesus and his disciples, who have very different ideas about God, very very different ideas about how to operate ourselves as we make our way in this world. Uh, And there's... There, there's a contentious relationship between Jews and Samaritans. We can think of them as enemies. Well, Jesus doesn't go the long way around the way most Jews would go. He takes his disciples through Samaria. Oh, how good is that? He's like, let's go. It'll be fun. right? And there's this guy named Eugene Peterson. Have you heard of Eugene Peterson? He's the guy who translated the Bible into the version we now have as, called it, as the message. Right? So, giant spiritual man, just a beautiful soul and an amazing writer. Anyway, uh, he says, this is Jesus when he's not in church. And I love this. I love this metaphor. This is Jesus when he's not in church. He's, he's uh, among a people that think very differently than, than he does. And he says that for us, this becomes a metaphor for us. This is like, uh, he takes them through a, a territory that's like us between Sundays. Like on Sunday, we generally are with a lot of people who think the same things we think about God. Although I would say that there are as many theologies in this room as there are people, by the way. But generally speaking, we think most of the same things about God and how we ought to operate in the world. And we get that every Sunday. But between Sundays, we rub shoulders with all sorts of different people who may not be thinking the same things that we think about God and how we operate in this world. And so he says this becomes a metaphor for us uh, as we live our lives between Sundays, which I think is awesome. So I just wanted to give you that background uh, for some of us again, uh, for some of us for the first time, and that's cool, Um, but before we read it. So Luke 16, 1 through 9, it goes like this. Jesus told his disciples, and by the way, He's telling this story to his followers, his disciples, and there are some Pharisees sort of hanging around on the edges so they're kind of curious about Jesus, but there's something about Jesus that rubs them the wrong way. They like don't like him, so they're, at this point, they're still trying to figure out a way to, you know, we've got to get rid of this guy. They're suspicious. So he's telling this story within earshot of the Pharisees, the religious experts of his day. Here's the story. He says, There's a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what's up? What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can't be my manager anymore. In effect, firing him on the spot. The manager said to himself, what do I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. Who wants to do that? Oh, I know what I'll do. So that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. I got this. So he called in each one of his master's debtors, the people who owed him stuff. And he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, quickly. We got to do this quickly. Quickly, make it 400. Then he asked the second one, how much do you owe thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. So he's discounting it, right? It's cutting their debts. So good. The master, then Jesus says, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What? We'll go that far. What is this story? It's so strange. The guy, he's dishonest. And Jesus has the rich guy be like, nice work, man. You got me. You dog. Oh, funny. So before, I, before we get into that, I have to tell you a story. When I was, uh, I graduated college, moved to Ames because Renee was going to school at Iowa State, and I wanted to be close to where she was, and I took a job. It wasn't a job I necessarily wanted, but I took it because I wanted to be close to Renee, right? So uh, I took a job at Sherwin-Williams Paint Store right over there. That was my job for two years. I was the assistant manager. My job there was, was to collect money that people owed when they had credit with the store. So paint contractors would come in and they would charge the paint to the store and we would send them a bill and they would they would have to pay us later, right? And it's not an easy gig to collect money from paint contractors. Now, nothing against paint contractors, I have a ton of respect for paint contractors. That job is a lot harder than you might imagine. So I've nothing But but respect for the people who run those businesses and do them well. But we had this guy, right? His name was Phil. Not even close to his real name, but we'll call him Phil because we're names, So we'll call him Phil. Actually, I haven't looked him up. I don't know if he's still doing business around here, but we'll call him Phil. Phil was a good guy. He was a great guy. Everybody liked him. He was hilarious. He had this thing about him that made you want to be near him, right? In fact, we would. The manager and I would, would sometimes take him golfing over at Vanker Golf Course, which was fun. And let me tell you, some painters can put down Coors Light like you wouldn't believe. But here's the deal, we hung out with this guy, he was great, everybody loved him, but there was this shady side to Phil that no one else got to see, but everyone suspected, but I got to see it because I was the assistant manager. I had to get him to pay his bills. He knew that after 30 days past due, I would give him a call and I would say to him, hey, I, we need you to pay your bill, right? And he would say, don't worry about it, it's coming. I got you, it'll come. He also knew that I would wait, according to protocol, he figured this all out, right, all on his own, that after 60 days, I would call him again and I would say, dude, you got to pay your bill or else I'm going to have to lock out your account right? And he'd give me every excuse in the book, because he knew that after 90 days, he would have another 30 days after that before I would actually lock him out, and he wouldn't be able to charge anything, right? So he'd give me every excuse in the book. He'd come in the store, he'd meet with me, and he'd say, my girlfriend lost her job, one of my dudes broke my truck, I have to get it fixed, you know, my dog is sick, and he would always say it, with a twinkle in his eye and a half smile on his face, and he knew, and I knew, and he knew that I knew that he was lying through his teeth, right? But he did it. He did it time and time again, and then we pay his bill at the last second before I would lock out. I respected that guy because he had this drive in him to get what he wanted. He had this initiative. He would just do whatever it was he needed to do to make him the most successful he could possibly be, even if he was dishonest about it. And I was like, dude, I got mad respect for you. Here's the deal, the reason I tell that story is because the manager in our story this morning is kinda like Phil. Remember, Jesus is walking through Samaria, he's walking through enemy territory, and his disciples and the Pharisees who are sort of following him around out there, they're walking with Jesus. Right now, they're surrounded by all sorts of people who are different than they are. They're thinking different things about God and the way we do life in this world. And so Jesus tells them a story. And it's a story that's just absolutely fascinating. It might be my favorite out of the 10 stories. There is one about poop, which is also pretty cool. Manure, I've told that one here before. But this one might be my favorite because Jesus seems to be saying, to his fellow Jews and to his, the Pharisees who were there. He's got a lot to teach them too because he knows they're kind of listening in on the periphery. He tells them a story and he seems to be saying to them, y'all got to pay attention. If you would just wake up and if you would just pay attention to the people around you who you seem to hate so much, you might actually be able to learn a little thing or two from the people who are different from you. Wouldn't it be great if we all had that idea and we all had that attitude? Oh, if we would just pay attention to the people around us, we might. If we had that kind of humility, we might actually be able to learn a thing or two. So he tells this story and the story kind of works like this, right? There's this rich man who discovers that his manager has been sort of misusing, doing some shady things with his possessions, maybe even embezzling, right? So we know it's probably some illegal stuff. So his manager goes to him and says, what's up, dude? You gotta give me an account of your managerial skills. What's happening here? Because you can't be my manager anymore. I've heard some things, I've looked at the books, I know some things, and it ends now. He fires the guy. But listen to what's interesting about this. And this is something that we might not catch. We have to put this in the context of the original hears, right? Here's the thing that we might miss. In the firing, he actually shows this guy grace. He shows the manager generosity right off the bat. We know the rich guy is a kind of a good guy. He's a decent guy. Because he could have had the manager thrown in jail. Which is what we would do. We would throw. We would prosecute. We would sue. We would recoup our assets that this person has stolen from us. Or he could have had him thrown in jail. Or he could have had him sold into slavery. Something we don't do anymore. Thank you. He would have sold him into slavery in order to recoup some of the assets that the guy had squandered. But but instead, he lets him go. He just. Nice guy, right? Come back to that. Now, the manager has to figure out what he's going to do. He's like, I don't know what to do. Like, I'm too weak to dig ditches. Like, he looks at himself in the mirror, if they had mirrors. And he's like, look at me. I'm so weak. I can't dig ditches. I'm just a skinny little dude. I can't do that. I'm not going to beg. That's just embarrassing. Like, I can't, humili- I can't be humiliated like that. He's like, I know what I'm going to do. So he does something that's going to boost his status in the community and most likely secure him a future job with some other well-respected business people in the area. So listen to what he does. He calls in the rich guys debtors. Now these men were highly respected within the community and would have had a long-standing relationship of doing business with the rich guy. They think the manager has called them in because he has now secured for them and arranged a deal with the rich guy because they don't know he's been fired. If they think he's been fired, they're going to walk out the door and they'll be like, dude, you don't have any reason to do this, but they don't. They don't know he's been fired. So he says to the one guy, what do you owe? And then the next guy, what do you owe? And he says, quickly, quickly, quickly. Jesus says, has the guy say, quickly write it down. We got to do this fast before you all find out that I don't have a job with the rich guy anymore. You got to do this fast, right? He's doing this underneath the table, off the books, because he's not legit. So he says, all right, write quickly. Take the 800 gallons of olive oil and cut it in half, make it 400. Take your 1,000 bushels of wheat you owe, Write down 800. The debtors are all excited because they think the manager has done them a solid by arranging this deal with the rich guy and they couldn't be happier about the gener- generosity of the rich guy. Smooth, right? Well, when the, when the rich guy finds out, he's got some options. He can now go back to the debtors and say, I fired that guy a week ago. No, you owe me your 800 and your 1,000 whatevers. And it's going to turn their feelings of praise for the guy, for his generosity, into feelings of anger. And they're going to be like, that dude is as stingy as it it gets. And their, their praise for his generosity would turn and their relationship would begin to sour. Or he can say nothing. He can allow the... The, the, the manager to sort of enjoy his popularity and go. So he thinks it over. He's a generous man after all. Remember? We know this because he didn't send the manager to jail. We know this because he didn't sell him into slavery. And we know this because the generosity is a huge virtue in his time and he doesn't want to lose that. So he just sort of Let's it go. And Jesus says the rich guy commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Why would Jesus tell a story like this? What's happening here where the dishonest guy is praised? Is he like condoning this sort of thing? Is he like, is he condoning and saying that, look, man, manipulating people is fine? Telling little white lies. Lying to people is fine as long as it's little white lies. I don't think so. Do you? I wouldn't be consistent with the rest of Jesus' teaching. So what's what's happening here? So Jesus acknowledges the dishonesty of the guy, but that's not what the rich man praises. right? He praises him because of, in verse 8, people of this world are more shrewd with their own kind than are the people of the light. What's he mean by that? It's confusing. I think it goes something like this. Like, if we'd all take our spiritual lives, if we'd all take this living life with God thing as seriously as this guy took his survival in the community, just think about what could happen. If we would all take our spiritual lives, our relationship with God, as seriously as some of us take our, our real jobs between Sundays and how much time and effort and hard work we put into that, if we, or maybe school or study or whatever, if we put as much energy or took our relationship with God as seriously as those things, just think about what could happen. I mean, so here's the, the, the dishonest manager. Like he's motivated by this sort of, he's moved by an intense creative purpose. Like there's juice there. He's like, I gotta do something. He's creative about it. He's got this initiative that we rarely ever see, right? So we see this all the time out there between Sundays, right? You see this all the time. You could probably think of all kinds of different ways in which you have been or others have been at work or at school. They show this creative purpose and they just do things that are spectacular. And there's like this relentless pursuit to get after whatever it is that people want to get out after, out out there in the corporate world or out there in the working world. Like I have these resources that I use, that pastors use. Lots of people do. It kind of, they're resources that give us sort of creative ideas, creative ways of thinking. They also, alongside of that, give me like commentaries on biblical passages so that I can learn and grow and more technical stuff. But these are like online resources, right? Well, one of them, typically it runs out in May, right? Well, in August, I started getting emails from these people asking me to renew my, renew my subscription. I'm like, it's August, man. Like what are you doing? It's like nine months. But they're already doing it in August. And then in September and October and November and December, I keep getting email after email. And then when it gets even closer, it's like every two weeks. And then it's like every week. If you do this now, you save X amount of money right? And this is standard practice with newspapers and magazines and online subscriptions. It's called a, a renewal series. Man, they come after you. Have you ever experienced this when you've got a subscription to something? You got to re-up, re-up. DirecTV is calling me. I don't want to talk to you, TV. I want to get rid of you, in fact. Don't call me anymore. Don't send me any emails. Have you had this experience? There's like this relentless pursuit after us to get whatever it is that they want. Here's this guy, he's relentless. He's like, I'm going to do what I got to do. Now let's think about our spiritual lives, our relationship with God, that that part. And by the way, I don't think we can separate our regular lives from our spiritual lives. I think they're all mixed together, but sometimes we separate them and we spend so much time on our other lives that we sort of, in our minds, we don't barely have time for this part of our lives. What would happen if we put that kind of sort of, that relentless pursuit in our relationship with God? How many of us are driven by that kind of creative purpose? How many of us have that kind of initiative? Man, we could learn a lot from the people of this world. It works for the church too, right? Oftentimes we'll come up with all sorts of different ideas to do something new around here, a different way to engage the world, but we sort of... lack the creative initiative in order to make it happen. We lack the number of people to get together and say, no, we're actually going to do this together. So oftentimes we have really good ideas and we talk about them for a while and then nobody takes up the mantle and says, let's go for it. Because oftentimes we end up thinking to ourselves, we got enough people around here. Somebody else can do it. Somebody else can do it. Somebody else can take that on. What kind of initiative do you need to take this morning? Where might God be calling you because I think God is always calling us, always inviting us, always in whispering in our ears saying you can take a next step. What kind of initiative do you need to take? Right? What what kind of thing do you need to give more of yourself of in order to make this community what God wants it to be or who do you need to divide into this? Where is your place of initiative? Or maybe it's not even have to do maybe it doesn't even have to do with this community, this church. Maybe there's a coworker or a friend or a neighbor or a fellow student or whomever. Where's there some initiative that you need to take? There's some group of people maybe that you've been that you've been feeling. There's like this itch that you've been feeling like God is calling me to serve these people. Right? Where do you need to take some initiative this morning? So here's this dishonest manager. Not only is he creative in his problem solving, but he takes this initiative. You know what the other thing he does is? He takes absolute, these are drastic steps. Like in faith world, we would call this an act of faith. Like he's taking big leaps of faith here like he's cutting these people's debt even though he doesn't work for the dude and as a as a consequence again guy already let him off didn't send him to jail didn't sold him sell him into slavery and yet he still goes and he cuts their debts in half you would think the rich guy would be like oh now it's on jail time i'm selling you I'm going to recoup everything you've lost to me because I thought you lost me a bunch and now you've lost me a bunch more. But he takes those drastic steps. We'll talk about why a little bit later. He takes them, right? I think it's always a good thing for us to take a a step back and look at our life with God and be like, what kind of drastic step, what kind of leap of faith does God want me to take right now? like what kind of risk are you taking any spiritual risks in your life with God that have that may have real life consequences in your life here and now when's the last time you took a leap of faith a step of faith a drastic step sometimes we do things like this around lent it's like the the season of the year where we're all like okay now I got to take a drastic step right and we'll give something up or we'll take something on we'll be like okay for lent I'm going to give up caffeine big step of faith for some people. Let's take, let's give up, seriously. The headaches that come, I get it. I know it. I'm on it. Right? Or we'll give up Netflix and chill. Or we'll give up something else. We'll make room in our schedule and we'll promise to take on something new like we'll spend more time with the one who made us. Like maybe we'll take on spiritual disciplines during that time. Like it's one season of the year we think to ourselves, it's not very long, we can do this. Right. And then we'll go back. Right? Maybe we'll take on the spiritual discipline of fixed hour prayer. Or maybe we'll be like, I'm gonna finally read my Bible. I'm gonna finally read it. I'm gonna finally study it. Or I'm gonna get with a group of people and we're gonna do this. Right. So there's a season out of the year where we kind of do this, but but maybe it's a good idea to sort of Take stock of our lives every once in a while, not just during that season, but every maybe every time we take our head up off the pillow and put our feet on the ground, we're like, okay, what's next, God? Is that the the first question you ask in the morning? Okay, what's next, God? Good morning, Jesus. What do you have for me today? What would happen if we did that? Oh, my goodness. Jesus is saying, be like that dude. That dishonest guy, who acted shrewdly in his dealings with his community so that he could get to where he needs to be, be that guy. Not because he's dishonest, but because he's like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to take it seriously. I'm not, it's not going to be a backseat because he's like, my survival depends upon it. What if we decided our life with God in this world, our survival depended upon it? Right? What would it be like? If you have a small group, get with your small group. Ask them about it. Have a discussion. Get, a, get with a group of friends. Have a conversation with your family. Sometimes it's easier to do these things with a group of people instead of on your own. And you got people. Right? If you need help, ask for it. Don't be ashamed. i got one more thing to say. So Jesus, like I said earlier, He's talking to His disciples. He's talking to them the Pharisees are kind of outside the circle listening in, right? He's, he's, help, he's, sort of, he's telling the story to his disciples, but he's also like, y'all got to hear this too. He knows they're there. Now, here's the deal about the Pharisees. They're the religious elite. They're the, they're the religious experts. They're the ones who take their spiritual lives oh so seriously. They don't have a problem with creative purpose. They don't have a problem with taking initiative that's like their thing and they wear it like a badge proudly they're like yeah that's like that's us they're really good at that here's their problem their problem is their view of who god is because jesus has a very different view of who god is and it's absolutely fundamental because it undergirds all of his teachings and, it, and their view of God undergirds all of their behaviors. Here's their deal. They think this, all of the problems in this world are due to the, the people of this world, specifically Jews, not obeying the rules, not doing things correctly, not doing the right thing. If only all the messed up people in this world would get their act together, straighten up their lives, follow all the rules all the Ten Commandments, and then the 603 we've added on top of it. So 613 in all, if people would just get their act together and do that, then God would save us from the Romans and set the world right and everything would be okay. See, they view God as an angry sort of grandfather like figure flying up there somewhere in the sky, probably also close at hand. But he's looking at his people and he's mad at how messed up they are. And if they just get their act together, then I can intervene and make things right again. And so people are often like, What, what does that make you? If that's your view of God, what are, you're walking around on eggshells all the time and you're afraid. And you're scared. But Jesus knows God is different. Jesus calls God Abba. Jesus knows because the Scriptures tell Him that God is the one who is merciful and gracious. The one who is abounding in steadfast love. God is loving and generous and forgiving. Kind of like who in the story? The rich guy. Kind of like the rich guy. Who has everything, holds All the power, holds all the authority, he lets the manager go. Doesn't sell him into slavery, doesn't send him to jail, doesn't rat him out in the end, doesn't punish him. And the manager knows that that's the kind of guy he is. And he wagers his whole future on it. And so he cuts the debts in half or cuts his debt by 20% because he knows and relies on the fact that the rich guy is a good, decent, beautiful, generous, gracious man, and he wins. Oh, Jesus says, wager your whole life on the grace of God. Bet it all, risk it all, that God is actually who God says God is. Loving and generous. Bet on the generosity of God. It's a world of grace we live in. We don't have to live in fear. We don't. We get to live in the freedom of the grace of God. And sometimes we people of faith are afraid to take the next step. We're afraid to we're afraid to let something go. We're afraid, we're afraid to move into something go or new or let something let, like an old way of thinking go because we think God is gonna be mad at us because we think that the most important thing to God is that we just get things right and we do the right things. Well, maybe God is calling you into something new. Maybe God is calling you to, to, to take a leap of faith. And this story kind of invites us into the reality that God's not going to be angry with you. That isn't angry because God is grace. And I think somewhere in this book it says God is love. Is that correct? Somebody correct me if I'm wrong about that. God is love. Fundamental to the very being of the divine is this self-giving radical love displayed for us. We've seen it on the cross. So we don't have to be afraid. Take the next step. Here's the deal. It's likely you know what it is. It's likely you already know or you have some sort of inkling that you know what it is that God wants you to do. That next step, go ahead and do it. Don't be afraid. Trust. Right? Show that creative purpose, that initiative. Take that drastic step. And bet everything that God's unfailing, all-encompassing love and grace will surround you the entire way. Just do it already. Let's pray.